And uh, yeah, so we're going back into our series in Genesis this morning. Um, and uh, just as the last few people come back in, let's pray uh, together before we uh, go back into this. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and who makes himself known. And a God who invites us into relationship, personal relationship with you. And Father, we're so thankful for that. And we pray again for our children and for our young people and for us in here, Father, that you'd help draw us all into that relationship, closer to you, deeper into that relationship today. Father, please make yourself known to us. Help us to see the God who you are and to respond in love and worship and uh, giving our lives to you. So speak to us now, we pray. Amen. So, uh, we're back into our series in Genesis. Genesis, the first book in the Bible, the book of beginnings. And uh, we were following the story of Jacob, who had just had a face-to-face encounter with God. We know from, chapter, from verse 25 of chapter 30 that Jacob, now to be called Israel, intended to take his two wives and their servants and his 11 sons and at least one daughter and go back to his homeland. The Lord himself then said to Jacob in verse 3 of chapter 31, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob set off in chapter 31 with his, with his children, his wives, his livestock, and all his goods to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. After an episode with his father-in-law three days into his journey, Jacob's thoughts start to turn to thinking about the reception he might get at home. Not his kind of phone reception, but what kind of welcome he might get at home. And if you followed the story earlier in our series, or read it before, then you might remember that Jacob left his home in rather a hurry. Jacob had to flee quickly to escape his brother Esau, who who was planning to kill Jacob for cheating him out of his father's blessing and his birthright. That was the situation last time Jacob was at home. And now he prepares to return some 20 years later. How do you think that Jacob felt about going home? How do you think he expected his brother to greet him, his brother who last time he was there wanted to kill him? How do you expect, how do you think he expected his brother to greet him? What emotions might he have experienced as he thought about facing his brother? And alongside that, all of that, maybe he longed to see his mother again. And perhaps his father. I don't know if he even knew whether his father was still alive or not. His father wasn't very well when he left. No doubt Jacob felt as he approached this journey, he felt fear. He felt fear, but maybe he also recalled a promise that the Lord had given him in a dream when he left home all those years ago. Verses 13 to 15 of chapter 28 record the Lord saying to him, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, And you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you 
and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And maybe Jacob also remembers his response to that promise given by the Lord in a dream. In verses 20 to 22 of Genesis 28, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I can return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So Jacob is returning home, having left for his life 20 years ago because his brother Esau was going to kill him. And maybe Jacob remembers the Lord's promise to bring him back to his homeland and his deal he struck with the Lord to bring him safely back to his father's household. In chapter 32, we read how Jacob takes action to pacify his brother Esau. You might find it helpful to follow the the unfolding events with me in verses 3 Uh, to 21 of chapter 32, uh, Genesis 32, and this is on page 35 if you're following in the church Bibles. Jacob sent messages ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you're to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided people, the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you have said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had, been, what he had with him... He selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. And that night, Jacob wrestles with God, as we considered 
in the last installment of our Genesis series, and you can listen to it online or ask for a CD if you missed it. God renames Jacob that night, and from now on, he's not to be called Jacob, the deceiver, but Israel, which probably means he struggles with God. And as Lou so helpfully brought out from that encounter, sinful Jacob encountered holy God, and yet Jacob's life was spared. As Lou pointed out, we can't hide before God, but but the moment we cry out to him, we're rescued forever. Not because we deserve it, but because of God's great love for us. Jacob was given a new name, symbolizing that the old person has gone. He's a new man, Israel. And at this significant turning point in his life, he's ready to face up to his sin, to his past, and move forward trusting God for his future. And chapter 32 finishes with the sun rising and Israel limping along. And then comes the cliffhanger right at the beginning of chapter 33. This is the end of the episode. If you watch a TV series, this is the thing that happens at the end. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. What's going to happen? What happens next is, uh, kind of shows us just this important uh, point in, in, uh, in Jacob's life. He's learning these lessons that God's been teaching him. shows us about how God welcomes us. And it shows us about owning God and him being our God. First of all, in, in verses 1 to 3, we see Jacob or Israel uh, taking control. This isn't kind of a, like a Brexit slogan, um, but uh, he's trying to take control in verses 1 to 3. He's been doing it for a while, actually, uh, although he's changed a bit since his encounter. But uh, Israel knows the promises God has given him. Not only, uh, that, not only that, he's experienced face-to-face encounters with God. And yet he still acts as if God could do with a helping hand. Israel kind of does trust God, and, and certainly more so since the encounter we saw last time. He does trust God, but he blends his trust with taking things into his own hands. Now, I remember a, a comment one of my brothers made to me when I left my career in engineering and uh, went to go and work for a church. And my brother suggested I keep two days a week working as a consultant engineer uh, to keep my hand in it in case the church thing didn't work out. And uh, my brother loves me uh, and wanted to look out for me. But basically what he was suggesting would have been uh, kind of like, for me, it would have been an insurance policy against God. Hold back two days a week engineering as an insurance policy to cover myself for the eventuality if God lets me down and the path he'd led me down falls through. And it appears a bit like that as Israel takes matters into his own hands, sending messages ahead to Esau to tell him how rich he's become and dividing his party up, selecting large, enormous gifts to send ahead of his brother, as we read earlier. And also now here, in the first three verses of chapter 33, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. See, there is some change. He's put himself in the front, at least, before he was always at the back. 
but he's still kind of putting uh, Rachel and, and Joseph, those he loves most, furthest away, trying to protect them, I guess. I wonder if there's any areas in our lives where we're tempted to give God a helping hand. I'm not saying uh, we shouldn't do anything. God doesn't call us to sit on our hands and let him do everything by himself. God calls us into partnership with him as his fellow workers. He equips us and has prepared good works for us to do. He uses us. But you know the difference between God using you to accomplish his purposes and you taking matters into your own hand to help God work in the way you think things should be done. I wonder if there are ways in which we are tempted to take control of matters rather than trust God. We thought a bit about that last week, didn't we? Maybe we need to learn to be more like our Lord Jesus, who said in John's Gospel, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus, of course, being the Son of God, operated uh, like this in a unique sense. He is God the Son. But we can learn to submit humbly to the Father's will, looking to see where he's working and joining with him in that, trusting in him to be doing his work, but not relying on our own strength or our own wit, our own scheming or planning. Uh, We have one of our core values as a church is depending on God in prayer. We don't depend on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own abilities to to bring about what we want to bring about. We depend on our God in prayer. We speak to him as we have been all week especially. Anyway, let's read on and discover that God didn't need Israel to take matters into his own hands to fulfill his promise. He was taking control, and uh, here he's seeking to get favor, verses 4 to 11. Verses 4 to 11 of Genesis 33, that Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the woman and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came forward and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. I wonder uh, how Hillary Clinton felt at uh, around sort of 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock in the morning, our time, whatever it was, when it became very clear that Donald Trump was to be the next president uh, of the United States of America. And uh, uh, Trump's supporters, I don't know if anyone saw this, but Trump's supporters, as this was kind of, as these events were unraveling and about to happen, uh, his supporters were, were chanting, lock her up, lock her up. Lock her up in their kind of room where they were at 5.38 our time, around that sort of time, if you saw that. 
And uh, he'd said himself, hasn't he? If he becomes president, you're going to be in prison. That's what he'd said. Imagine how Hillary Clinton felt as uh, it kind of became, uh, became reality that Trump was going to become the next president. I wonder if she recalls that, that promise to send her to prison or if she was aware that all his supporters were chanting, lock her up. She probably didn't expect that favorable a reception. And uh, thankfully, it seems that she, she's got one. seems like it's okay. But uh, maybe this is kind of a bit what Jacob was expecting, this fearful reception, this fearful... Esau's going to smash him. He's coming with his 400 men. Surely he's now going to do what he wanted to do 20 years ago, and he's going to kill him. But instead, he finds this favorable reception. Esau is favorable towards him. He loves him. He welcomes him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He couldn't show a warmer love and reception, could he? And like he's had this, this kind of this moment of coming back to God in the last episode that we saw. He's now seen God's face and lived. He's been made right with God. Now he's kind of seen his brother's face and lives. He's seen his brother's face who wanted to kill him. And he's restored to him also. Maybe uh, you feel about God a bit like Jacob felt about Esau. He hates me. He's going to kill me. What can I do to escape his anger? If you think God is, feels like that toward you, then you might be pleasantly surprised. Time and again throughout the Bible, God in, insists that his heart is to receive and restore people who've rejected him and rebelled against him. This account of Esau running to meet Jacob and, and throwing his arms around him, embracing him and kissing him, will make some of us remember a story Jesus told once. Jesus was talking to a group of people who thought God was like how Jacob thought Esau would be like. These people looked down on other people, people who'd made mistakes, who had messy lives, or who had made associations with people or employers these people frowned upon. But Jesus spent time with these dirty outcasts, How could that be right? Surely God hates people who've done wrong. Surely God can't wait to kill those who've disobeyed him or wandered from him. So these people ask Jesus, how come you hang out with those people who God surely wouldn't want to hang out with? Surely he wouldn't want anything to do with them. And Jesus responded with three stories. And the third story is the one which we might remember as we think about Esau's response to his brother Jacob. If you want to follow it with me, you can find it on page 1049. I'm reading from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now his father should have just had nothing to do with him. He'd been as, as uh, repulsive as, as you could be in that society. But while he was still a long way off, Jesus said, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And this, Jesus says, is how God the Father responds to those who've wandered but come back to him. He responds and calls us sons Sons and daughters, children in his family, not servants, not slaves, not prisoners, not people he's going to smash, but children he delights in and loves. He refers to us as being, having us back to life, as finding what was lost. And he celebrates, God celebrates if we return to him. If you think God views you like Jacob thought Esau would view him, then I've got news for you this morning. If you'd only turn around, leave whatever it is that you've replaced God with and return to him, you'll find he responds as a loving father, overwhelmed with compassion for a son who he feared was lost. And this is at the heart of the Christian message. That's why Jesus came to die on a cross. His death wasn't a pointless death. He didn't just jump on a cross to to die to kind of show off. He died to divert the anger of God that was deserved. And it should have fallen us. He denied to divert that onto himself, away from us. And in doing this, making God favorable toward us, giving that favorable reception that Jacob had with Esau. Maybe today is a day you're going to come back and find that favorable reception. Find that God is that loving father waiting to welcome you, to embrace you, to kiss you. I'm going to pray a bit later on. And I'll give you an opportunity to join in that prayer with me. Uh, firstly, though, let's just uh, see the final thing that's kind of going on here. Uh, he's taking control. He's getting favor. And then Jacob, or Israel's giving glory. In verses 12 to 20, back in Genesis 33. Then Esau said, let us be on our way, and I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they're driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that, Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That's why the place is called Succoth. Succoth means shelters. After Jacob came from Padan Maram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan. Remember this? This is back safely in his homeland. And camped within sight of the city, 
For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El El Elohi Israel. El Elohi Israel can mean El or God is the God of Israel, or it can mean mighty is the God of Israel. He's safely home. He's safely home back in the land of Canaan, verse 18. He can tangibly see that God is fulfilling his promise to him. No wonder he's kind of saying, mighty is the God of Israel. And it's very important to remember who it is that names this altar. God will be referred to as the God of Israel by many people. But here, now, in this story, it's Israel himself who names this altar. Israel the man, previously called Jacob, Israel names this altar, mighty is the God of Israel, or God is the God of Israel. Why is that important? Well, it's Israel's personal declaration. It would be like me declaring, mighty or God is the God of Dan. It's not just some abstract uh, declaration of praise. This is personal. My God is mighty. God is fulfilling his promise to me. It's a bit like the Apostle Paul declaring in his letter to the Galatians, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wonder if you can say that. I wonder if you can say that God is your God, that Jesus loved you, gave himself for you. Again, we've seen in this series about that transition from God being someone else's God and us kind of looking to someone else's faith and knowing God as our own God, having, him, having our own faith in him. And remember Jacob's response to the Lord's promise given to him in a dream. We read it earlier from chapter 28. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. Then the Lord will be my God. And so Israel now names this altar El Elohi Israel. El is the God of Israel. The Lord is indeed his God. So what about us? What about us? If uh, we know God to be our God, if we know him to be our God personally, then we perhaps need to, need to do what Jacob was doing here, what Israel was doing here. It was helpful, wasn't it, that he was reflecting. He was within sight of the city and reflecting, thinking back, thinking back to what God had said to him. Thinking back to God's promises in his life. Thinking back to what had happened. How, how events had turned out in his life. Can we reflect like that? Can we reflect on what God has said? What he's said he'll do. And what we've seen him do in our lives, in our experience. He reflected. But he didn't just reflect. He remembered. He recalled that promise at Bethel. He reflected. He remembered. And then he recorded. He bought that plot of land and, and he set up this altar. He reflected on God and what he said and what he'd done in his life. He remembered his promises and he recorded it by buying this plot of land and setting it up 
as an altar. Now, I'm not going to suggest you buy plots of land and set up altars, but maybe you want to. That might help. Um, but, but maybe you had an encounter with the Lord in this 24-7 week of prayer that we've just had. Maybe uh, something happened there. Maybe you felt the sense of God really leading you in some way or making some truth very clear to you. Maybe it was something you'd known before, but for the first time, it really became very clear to you. Maybe it was something new. Whatever it is, if we've had an encounter with God this week or at any time in our lives, it might be helpful to, to do what Jacob was doing, to reflect, to remember and to record it in some way. Are there ways like Jacob that we can mark what God has done in our lives or what he's like? Ways that we can put down a stone, as it were. Maybe uh, setting a calendar reminder uh, if you're kind of into your electronic calendars. Or uh, if you're a bit more arty, putting a, a verse on the wall or a picture or a photo. Maybe telling someone, telling someone else so that they can remind you and help you to remember it. Some people find journaling very helpful. Writing each day or every few days in a book to record how God has been working, the things he's been doing or teaching you. Seems fitting today, doesn't it, on a day where we're going to celebrate remembrance in a moment of a a slightly different sort. But to think about the need to remember who God is, to remember what he's said, to remember what he's done, to reflect on what he's done in our lives and to make some record of it. And in doing that, we can give him glory. We can say, mighty is my God. He is my God. Israel was declaring the Lord to be his God. And yet there's a sense in which all of God's chosen people are included in that. Israel, the man, would become the figurehead for God's people. God's people would become known as Israel. Because they all descended from him, largely. The fulfillment of his promise to Israel was the fulfillment of promised blessing that would extend to us. That's why we've kind of got this series, is the God of our ancestors, knowing who the God of our ancestors is. Well, this is, this is him, this is what he's like. And he's our God too. So as Israel declared the Lord to be his God, we too can declare him to be our God. I'm just going to pray for a moment as the band come up and um, lead us in response. Our Father, I thank you that you offer us that favorable reception. Father, thank you that wherever we're coming from today, whatever our our starting point is, however we've lived, acted, thought, spoken, however we've offended you or offended other people, Father, thank you that you're the God who welcomes and restores those who've gone astray. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to leave whatever it is that we've come from, whatever it is that we've gone astray with, and come to you and find in you that warm welcome, those arms that embrace find you to be a father who even kisses, who celebrates when your children come home. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus and his sacrifice to make that possible. And simply pray this morning, Lord, please be my God. Please be my God.